Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of a recent episode exploring the history of investors holding businesses accountable and the dawn of the ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, movement. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. The president's acting chief of staff admitted a quid pro quo at a press conference. Heck, he proudly embraced it. Then he sought what will from now on be known as the Mulvaney Mulligan by telling Americans to ignore what he said out loud. Listen for yourself. Here's part of Mick Mulvaney's exchange with ABC's Jonathan Carl. To be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. Yesterday in Ankara, Vice President Mike Pence announced that Turkey agreed to what he called a temporary ceasefire in northern Syria. This week, President Trump said Turkey's attack on America's Kurdish allies there don't concern the United States. That has nothing to do with us. And uh, the Kurds are much safer right now, but the Kurds know how to fight. And as I said, they're not angels. They're not angels. And I'd like to note the death of Elijah Cummings. The longtime Baltimore congressman was a powerful civil rights advocate and a leading Democrat in Washington. He died yesterday at the age of 68. Here was part of his first speech on the House floor in 1996. My mission is one that comes out of a vision that was created long, long ago. It is a mission and a vision to empower people. To make people realize that the power is within them. That they, too, can do the things that they want to do. Join us. What do you make of the newest revelations? A quid pro quo? A summit of world leaders at the president's ailing Miami resort? You can join us anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. With us from Washington, D.C. is Anita Kumar, the White House correspondent and associate editor for Politico. Anita, always great to have you. Hi, David. Thanks for having me back. And also with us from the nation's capital, Laura Rosen. She's diplomatic correspondent for Al Monitor. It's a digital publication dedicated to in-depth coverage of the Middle East. She's also a former reporter for Foreign Policy Magazine and for Politico. Laura, welcome uh, this first time, I think, on the show. Thank you, David. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point's news analyst Jack Beattie joins us. Hello, Jack. Well, we will have Jack, I hope, shortly standing by. Uh, Jack, can you hear me now, sir? Hello? Jack, welcome Hello. to the show, buddy. Glad to have you oh, on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hello, David, Anita, and Laura. The glories of live radio. Delighted to have you. There have you, sir. There we are. So we let's play a couple of clips from that epic thing. You know, we sometimes say what a month this week has been. What a year this yesterday was. Uh, let's play a little bit from, from uh, that uh, press briefing that the White House Chief of Staff had, the acting White House Chief of Staff had, the acting, at least for now, White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney. He held a press conference. He was pressed uh, repeatedly on the subject of President Trump's dealings with Ukraine. Here again are a few questions from ABC News's Jonathan Carl. The demand for an investigation into the Democrats was part of the reason that he it was honored to withhold funding to Ukraine. The, the look back to what happened in 2016 certainly was, was part of the thing that he was worried about in corruption with that nation. And that is absolutely appropriate. Yeah, which, which ultimately then flowed. So I want to play a little bit more of that exchange. Carl continued to press Mulvaney, who went on to say this. Issue. But to be clear, what you just described is a quid pro quo. It is funding will not flow unless the investigation into the, into the Democratic server uh, happened as well. We, we, do, we do that all the time with foreign policy. We were holding up money at the same time for, uh, what was it, the Northern Triangle com- countries. We were holding up aid at the Northern Triangle countries so that, they, uh, so that they would change their policies on immigration. In his remarks to those increasingly agog reporters, uh, Mulvaney alluded to State Department officials who testified behind closed doors in Capitol Hill this week in ways that cast the president's diplomacy in Ukraine in poor light. Uh, among those people testifying included a former senior advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo named Michael McKinley. And Mulvaney spoke pretty dismissively. What did McKinney say yesterday? Well, McKinney said yesterday that he was really upset with the political influence in foreign policy. That was one of the reasons he was so upset about this. And I have news for everybody. Get over it. There's going to be political influence in foreign policy. I don't usually play that many clips at the top of the hour. I wanted people to get a flavor for what that was like. Anita Kumar, you cover the White House. You have for years. Uh, 
How extraordinary was what we witnessed there? Well, it was extraordinary, first of all, because we don't usually have briefings anymore. Sure. Uh, and Mick Mulvaney doesn't usually come out. I mean, he came out to talk to us about uh, the president's decision to have his the G7 summit next year in Doral. But he knew and he we'll would talk, get questions. By the way, I want to say yeah. we're going to be yeah. talking more about that, too. But let's focus yeah. on this question. Yeah. And he and he knew he'd get questions about Ukraine. He was ready for those questions. It appeared he was briefed and ready. And then he he it was just extraordinary watching that because he just did. He, he undid everything President Trump has done for weeks, which is say that there was nothing wrong with what he did. It was not a quid pro quo. And and he just flat out said it was. So we were all kind of sitting there saying, what just happened here? Now, you, as you noted, he walked it back or tried to walk it back, but it was on camera in front of a bunch of reporters. So it's a little bit unclear what they're what they're trying to do now. I want to play a clip. My colleague uh, Aisha Roscoe of NPR questioned Mulvaney about whether President Trump had asked the head of the, you know, the head of Ukraine to investigate his political opponents. And she focused namely on Joe Biden. And so so you would say that it's fine to ask about the DNC, but not about Biden. So Biden is now, Biden is running for the Democratic nomination, right? That's well, for 2020. He, that, so that, are you, that's are a, you that's a hypothetical because that did not happen here. No, no, but, but I would ask you. No, no. On the call, the president did ask about investigating the Bidens. Are you saying that the money that was held up, that that had nothing to do no, with the, the yeah, Biden? No, the, the money held up had absolutely nothing to do with Biden. There's no question. And that was the point I made to you. Now, those dings that you heard were, uh, you know, I think reporters getting a lot of notes from their assigning editors saying, ask this question or make sure to follow up on that. You know, Rasko got Mulvaney draw a seeming distinction, Laura Risen, between between uh, the question of the Bidens and uh, Hunter Biden's business uh, activities in Ukraine uh, and the pursuit of an investigation by the Ukrainians at the president's behest on this unfounded theory somehow implicating Democrats in wrongdoing in the 2016 elections. It seems as though time and again, Laura, that Mulvaney was saying it's OK for there to be quid pro quos and that it's OK for there to be quid pro quos in foreign policy involving uh, things uh, that – could advance a president or an administration's political interests rather than public policy interests. Exactly. Is this okay? Is this normal? Well, he, he seemed to be erasing a distinction of, a, of an administration having a political, um, you know, priorities and their foreign policy, for instance, like doing, you know, tough sanctions on Iran versus a nuclear deal um, with, with uh, asking a foreign country through your personal lawyer and this gang of, you know, kind of donor diplomats to, uh, to help Trump's private, you know, political interests. He seemed to be trying to erase that. And then secondly, when he walked things back, I'll note that uh, to Ayesha Rasko's amazing uh, questions and follow-up, um, that he only walked back a tiny thing, which was he didn't say there was no quid pro quo. He he delinked it from uh, the look, uh, look for the server. And I think that's because um, Attorney General Barr and the Justice Department were very uncomfortable with him having suggested that Military aid was withheld to Ukraine so they could pressure Ukraine to help them with their investigation of the origins of the Russia probe. You know, uh, Laura, it strikes me that a lot of what we've uh, witnessed and covered about the Trump administration in a sense is consistent with his promise to be a disruptor. Uh, In some ways, the president and his aides do things in public that you are amazed and astounded by or one is amazed and astounded by simply because they do it in public. Is this in in nature uh, genuinely different than the way other administrations behaved or is it just different in that we're learning about it out loud? No. So you now have had Rick Perry in an interview this week, the Secretary of Energy to the Wall Street Journal and uh, and the U.S. ambassador to the EU in prepared remarks that were shared with the press before he spoke with the congressional impeachment inquiry yesterday, yesterday say that Trump told them in a May meeting in the Oval Office, he, you know, you talk to, Ukra- to Rudy Giuliani, my personal lawyer, about my problems with Ukraine and go to him. And it was that's very unusual that someone who's not in the U.S. government, who has no accountability, no security clearance, um, no, no public um, acknowledgement of his role, you know, at the at the time is in charge of this very specific thing that members of the U.S. government are being asked to secretly do. So that that seemed to me unusual, and and they um, have not fully uh, seemed to, you know, Mick Mulvaney said, you know, that Trump can pick whoever he wants to have do his foreign policy. He can fire me tomorrow. That's not the same as having some secret envoy that has 
no represent, you know, recognition of having that role in the U.S. government. Jack Beatty, you know, we, you heard uh, Laura Rosen mention Rick Perry, who's come into uh, a bit of the uh, uh, spotlight, uh, unwelcomely for him, uh, of the Ukraine investigation going on on Capitol Hill. Rick Perry also announced he's going to be gone uh, before the end of the year. It's not clear exactly when. The energy secretary, one of the longer serving members of the cabinet. Uh, what does his departure say to you? Well, maybe he's getting out uh, just ahead of time. We don't know. You know, there's a book by, uh, I think his name is Rick Tyler, a former uh, consultant, Republican consultant. And the book is called Everything Trump Touches Dies. (laughs) Bit of an exaggeration. But it does seem as if all the people who, you know, are involved with him in one way or another are tarnished. He brings them down to his level. And and so with Rick Perry, who looked like he was by, you know, the, the, the point of view of the energy sector of our country doing a great job, throwing mm-hmm. away environmental regulations and opening away, you know, the whole the whole deregulatory agenda and and and, and the like. Uh, and now he is he is uh, he's caught up in this uh, for some, you know, activity with uh, Giuliani in perhaps in in Ukraine and, uh, and elsewhere, uh, other meetings. Uh, but it, so it's just emblematic of that idea that whatever Trump touches, if not dies, gets deeply stained. Anita Kumar, briefly before uh, the end of the segment, are you hearing anything from the White House about Perry's departure that contradicts that? No, you know, the president and Perry were on really good terms. And there's been talk for months now about him leaving at the end of this year. The question really for us is, is he going to testify? Is he going to go before Congress and and talk? That would be a senior figure indeed. Obviously, a number of uh, former diplomats and some current diplomats have been testifying behind closed doors uh, in Congress this week. We're talking about a quid pro quo. We'll also be talking about a global summit at one of the president's uh, resorts in Florida. And we're talking about Syria, Turkey, and the American withdrawal there. What are your thoughts? I'm David Falkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance. And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.
This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. In a few minutes, we'll be talking about a temporary ceasefire in Syria, or at least that's what it's called, the implications for the region and for U.S. policy and standing abroad. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. I'm delighted by our panel of guests uh, who are with me this hour, Anita Kumar, the White House uh, Correspondent Associate Editor for Politico, Laura Rosen. She's Diplomatic Correspondent for Al Monitor, and our own On Point News Analyst, Jack Beatty. I want to turn to a couple of calls first. Uh, uh, we've got a call from Portland, Maine. Constantine is calling. Uh, Tell me your thoughts on this, Constantine. Well, this is a, uh, a, a ploy by Trump that he uses right out of his playbook often. It's, you know, deny, deny, deny. And then, you know, oh, we might have did it, you know, and then, well, okay, we did it, so what? And this is a, basically an overarching strategy to desensitize the American public to his crimes and wrongdoings. And in doing so, he, what he's doing is tacitly... Uh, telling the 18 GOP senators that got to run for, you know, defend their seat, don't get out of line or suffer the wrath of Twitter. Thank you for that, Constantine. Appreciate it. We're also getting a call from Bristol, Vermont. Heike, uh, thanks for listening, Heike. What are your thoughts here? Well, hi. First, thank you for taking my call. And secondly, I just want to say I have the feeling and strong belief, basically, that Congress has turned into kindergarten. They're all a whole bunch of little kids who uh, are playing uh, around. There is nothing serious about this Congress anymore. So just to be clear, Heike, I mean, you know, the president is facing quite likely impeachment by the House of Representatives. Is it that you feel that they're not doing oversight or uh, appropriately, or is it that you feel that both sides are just kind of slapping each other around and that there's not a seriousness of purpose there? Right. That's uh, how it feels. And, you know, in the meantime, our planet is going uh, downhill. You know, and we have a president who doesn't believe it. We have a vice president who spews out his Christian beliefs. Um, and that's all that counts. OK, well, th- thank you for that, Heike. Certainly, of course, vice president entitled uh, to his faith. But um, I wanted to turn now to, you know, this other controversy that also came up in that press conference where Mulvaney I don't know whether it was as good news. I don't know whether it was a distraction. I don't know what it was. But Mulvaney announced the G7 summit, and that's where leaders of sort of the top seven industrial nations come together. And he announced it would be held at President Trump's Doral property in Miami. Mulvaney insisted that this was the perfect location out of 12 options. Listen, I was skeptical. I was. I was, I was aware of the political sort of uh, criticism that we'd come under for doing it at Doral. Um, which is why I was so surprised when the, when the advanced team called back and said that this was the perfect physical location to do this. So I get the criticisms. So does he. Uh, face it, he'd be criticized regardless of what he chose to do. But no, there's no issue here on him profiting from this in any way, shape or form. Walter Schaub is the former uh, head of the uh, Office of Government Ethics, which is in some ways a watchdog within the White House. Uh, He tweeted out, hi, there is no level of corruption greater than a president participating in the award of a contract to himself. We have reached the bottom. Uh, If the Senate will not act to stop this, there's no government ethics program. It's over. Uh, Jack Beatty, we've talked a lot over the weeks about Trump's uh, stretching of norms. Uh, How different is this by degree or nature than what we've talked about previously? Well, it's a it's a case. Uh, it's an example of what Constantine was talking about. The uh, you know the the effort to um, the attempt to uh, excuse uh, uh, recklessness uh, by being open about it, <laughs> you know, sort of hiding in plain sight. This this resort we read income has been fa- has has fallen nearly seventy percent just in a couple of years. And this uh, uh, this this G summit, this G eight, or whatever it is now, uh, uh, the one in two thousand four in Sea Island Resort in Georgia, forty five thousand meals were served to three thousand people. That's a lot of dollars, uh, and. And those dollars are going to go to this damaged uh, uh, resort. And, and, of course, it represents a flagrant uh, breaking of the promise that the president made in 2017 to keep his hands off the day-to-day running of his business. His, his son, Eric, said there are lines that we would never cross, and that, and that means business and government will not mix. 
Well, they are here flagrantly, and as Constantine said, in front of all of us, and he's just saying, make of it what you will. Anita, I assume you were, you know, burning up the phones and the WhatsApp and the signal and any way you could talk to people inside the administration. What were they saying with a straight face yesterday about this announcement? Yeah, uh, I I really felt like this. I know we say this every day, but I really felt like that announcement really was a was a change, was was a big moment in this presidency. He knew he, he the president knows he's under investigation by the House for possibly illegally making money off of his uh, presidency. He knows this. It's part of the impeachment inquiry. And yet he went ahead and did it anyway. He doesn't care about optics. And so he doesn't care about what people think. And And you are right. I was asking everybody, what is this? I'm not understanding it. And what they said to me was sort of what you guys just touched on, which is he feels that he is fearless. I mean, he can get away with it. His support from his supporters that, you know, that voted for him in 2016 has really not changed in a couple years at all. Every outrageous thing he does, everything he does that we think is so different and breaks the norms, it's virtually unchanged. The support is virtually unchanged. And so he doesn't care. He can just go out there and do that. Uh, Someone that I talked to said he feels like he's bulletproof. And do, do do the administration aides that you talk to think that's okay? Therefore, if he can get away with it, it's fine. I mean, is everybody along for the ride on that? No. Is anyone contesting what Schaub said? Um, well, the president has said that he does not feel that he is violating the Constitution. That's really where we're at. Uh, the Constitution says you cannot get money from uh, foreign governments or foreign officials. And the president says he finds that there's nothing wrong with that, that it's at cost, right? They're not going to make a profit on it, so it's okay. Um, I think that people that are actually working for the government, for the White House, just feel like there's something every day and they just have to go along. You, you said they're along for the ride in some respects, I I think they're along for the ride. They put their head down, do what they're told, and and just kind of go on. You're if you're there, you know what what to expect. Unless I was mistaken, I think uh, Senator Lisa Murkowski, who's a tough-minded, uh, moderate Republican from Alaska, basically expressed misgivings about this hotel deal. You heard a lot more Republican misgivings about what we're about to talk about next, and that's about what happened uh, in Turkey. Uh, excuse me, what happened in Syria involving Turkey yesterday? President Trump showered Turkish President. Res- Recep Erdogan with praise after the two sides announced a pause in military action in northern Syria. I just want to thank and congratulate, though, President Erdogan. He's a friend of mine, and I'm glad we didn't have a problem because, frankly, he's a hell of a leader, and he's a tough man, he's a strong man, and he did the right thing. Uh, Turkey reportedly broke that agreement this morning, launching an airstrike that killed five civilians in northeast Syria. I want to play one other clip, uh, Laura Rosen, before we get to to what we're talking about. Speaking to reporters on Wednesday, Donald Trump said Turkey's invasion into north Syria had nothing to do with the United States and shouldn't interest the U.S. either. The Kurds actually are pulling back substantially from Turkey and Syria is pulling in. Syria probably will have a partner of Russia, whoever they may have. Uh, I wish them all a lot of luck. You know, Russia was involved in Afghanistan, used to be called the Soviet Union. Now it's called Russia for a reason, because they lost so much money in Afghanistan that uh, they had a downsize, a very big downsizing. So if Russia wants to get involved with the uh, with Syria, that's really up to them. They have a, a problem with Turkey. They have a problem at a border. It's not our border. We shouldn't be losing lives over it. Sir Laura Rosen, uh, uh, Mike Pompeo, Secretary of State, Vice President uh, Mike Pence uh, go to Ankara. They meet with the, uh, the president of Turkey. They emerge and say we've got a ceasefire. The Turks say it's not really a ceasefire. Uh, tell us – you've got the language as I understand it. Tell us what actually was reached and what it means. So there's a this 13-point plan. It's it's a, a joint Turkish-U.S. statement between, you know, the U.S. and Turkey. And essentially several of the steps are the U.S. and the Kurds withdrawing, you know, and, and the Turks holding fire for 120 hours while they withdraw from this area that Turkey wants to control for a safe security zone. And then the U.S. lifting sanctions on Turkey. So um, – you know, is it better to have less fire, you know, firing on the Kurds than it was, you know, a week ago? Yes. Um, is this all concessions on the U.S. side? Yes, it's all U.S. concessions. So Trump yesterday, you know, after this uh, deal was struck and Pence announced it and praised Trump's strength for achieving it, 
um, Trump was giving this Academy Award type speech, thanking Erdogan as like a peacemaker. And it was just surreal, the gap between, you know, reality and the and the bloodshed on the ground and, and Trump pro- proclaiming it this, you know, huge peace agreement that would save millions and millions of lives. Laura, I, I want to make sure I understand it correctly. I think it's important for listeners to know it's obviously a part of the world we hear a lot about, but the details are a little tough. We don't have to get uh, you know, microscopic on this. But as I understand it, basically, the Kurds, Kurdish fighters in the northern part of uh, of Syria were, in a sense, working with us. And they were working with us both to kind of shore up or to hold back the Assad regime and limit it in Syria, but also really to help contain ISIS. Uh, and they were held, holding ISIS prisoners, uh, basically, at the U.S. behest in a way that limited the amount of U.S. American military presence there, that we could be involved but not heavily present there. Suddenly, the Turks have always wanted that part of the country. They've always opposed the Kurds. And basically, we've cleared the Kurds out of that part of Syria for them so the Turks can kind of go in. We, the Turks have essentially accomplished what they wanted, but we've effectively done it for them. Is that Absolutely. right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, and and the U.S. only really uh, went in with the you know the the Kurds were really the the ground fighters, so that as you say the you know the U.S. could use air power and and small footprint, and and the Kurds I think they lost eleven thousand Kurdish fighters in the fight against ISIS that you know seized the territory under ISIS control the past few years. So um, they were the ones that that did that. The U.S. tried for years with Turkey to get them to stop letting ISIS get into Syria. You know, I mean, do you remember the um, huge attacks in Paris and other cities that, by ISIS. So um, there were all these ISIS fighters, foreign fighters getting into Syria for years. The U.S. was trying to work with Turkey, and Turkey was not really that uh, worried about ISIS. They were more worried about other things and uh, and didn't stop it. So that's why the U.S. was working with the Kurds. And just, you know, Trump's abrupt decision after a phone call with Erdogan um, didn't give the U.S. a chance to work out uh, a way to draw down more uh, responsibly to let allies know how to prepare. Anita, I want to briefly ask you, there was that astonishing letter that was released just a couple days ago, which we took to be huge news before uh, Mick Mulvaney's press conference, uh, where he's just sort of saying, get with it, get on the right side. Hey, fella, you know, do the right thing. It was all exclamation points and exhortations, uh, uh, seemingly a deeply unserious letter. What was the deal with that? Well, I mean, when when it was first out, people thought it was not real. (laughs) But when the White House confirmed it, I mean, to me, it just looked a little bit like what the president tweets or how he talks. That was exactly what was in the letter. It was, you know, let's make a deal. It it wasn't what you are used to as a uh, a formal letter from one leader to another. And uh, a lot of us took that as you know, this is something that the president wanted to do. He uh, it was r- straight from his mouth or, you know, the type of language he uses. And uh, and he went ahead and said that. And and the response from media overseas was that the president of Turkey just uh, threw it in the trash, actually, is the is <laughs> the phrase that we had heard that he did not take that seriously. Jack Beatty, I want to turn to eyes to Capitol Hill. You know, Republicans have been doing a lot of uh, no commenting or trying to kind of struggle out of having to answer questions about Ukraine and Rudy Giuliani and a lot of the stuff that happened at last 24 hours. On Syria, however, there started to be some pushback. Uh, in the House of Representatives, obviously led by Democrats, it rebuked President Trump's decision to withdraw forces from, from northern Syria and support for the Kurds. Uh, there was that famous meeting between Trump and congressional Democrats where Nancy Pelosi essentially pointed her finger at the president as in a photo he released later. And she basically walked out expressing concerns. But then on on the Senate side, you started to hear some real objections. Republicans on Capitol Hill started to break uh, with president. And we heard, uh, for example, this speech. Utah Senator Mitt Romney, a leading Republican, took to the Senate floor yesterday. The announcement today is being portrayed as a victory. It is far from a victory. Serious questions remain about how the decision was reached to precipitously withdraw from Syria and why that decision was reached. Given the initial details of the ceasefire agreement, the administration must also explain what America's future role will be in the region, what happens now to the Kurds, and why Turkey will face no apparent consequences. And Jack, I also want to play for you the day before uh, uh, the Lindsey Graham, often a, a strong supporter of the president, slammed uh, Trump for the decision to withdraw troops. Here he was in exchange with uh, U.S. Special Representative for Iran, Brian Hook, at the Senate Foreign Relations Committee hearing. Uh, Graham chairs that committee. Graham quotes President Trump from earlier in the morning when the president called his gambit in Syria, quote, brilliant. 
This is the most screwed up decision I've seen since I've been in Congress. When the president said today, Syria, the invasion of Turkey, uh, Turkey's invasion of Syria is really of no consequence to us. Do you know why we sanction Turkey if that's true, Mr. Hook? Um, The president did um, threaten sanctions on Friday and has imposed some of them on Monday. And and I cheered them on. Um, I don't know how in the world Pompeo and Pence bring an end to the bloodshed before they leave the present Syria. If Syria wants to fight for their land, that's up to Turkey and Syria. So I view the situation on the Turkish border with Syria to be, for the United States, strategically brilliant. I don't see anything brilliant about this. Jack Beatty, what are you hearing up on the Hill and how consequential is it to the president's uh, ability to conduct foreign policy? Well, one way to frame this is to look back to the 2016 campaign when 50 former Republican national security officials signed a document warning that Mr. Trump, quote, lacks the character, values and experience to be president. They warned that he would he could be, quote, the most reckless president in American history. But Mitt Romney, in that speech you quoted, goes on to suggest something else. Recklessness implies Use of force implies, you know, send in the Marines. Mitt Romney implies the president lost his nerve, hmm. that, the, that, the, that the president of Turkey essentially said to him, we're going in there whether you are going to leave or not, Mr. President, and uh, take it or leave it. And the president said, wait a minute, let us get out. Well, you know, his, the president's supporter, Jack Keane, a, mili- a general, was quoted on excellent interview on Morning Edition in which he said, this is amazing that a president of the United States would retreat in front of a Turkish army when we control the air there. All the president had to say was, send those tanks across the border and I'll send in my planes. And that and, and the Turkish strongman would have been a weak man. Uh, well, two, two developments uh, this uh, as we were broadcasting. The uh, the Kurds say that Turkey is violating the hours-old uh, Syria ceasefire. And President Trump says, according to ABC News, that a potential visit by the Turkish President Erdogan to the White House is now, quote, very much open. And then he said, quote, I would say that, yeah, he would come. He did a terrific thing. He's a leader. Coming up, we'll talk about the life, death, and legacy of Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummings and what we saw in this week's Democratic debates. Did one of them appeal to you? I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. A gruesome scandal at the nation's most prestigious university shines a light on a macabre and lucrative world of buying and selling human remains. Human body parts taken by a manager at the Harvard Medical School morgue and then sold to customers online. So my first skull is right there on the top shelf. That's my first and my favorite. I'm reporter Ali Jarmani, and this story raises some tough questions. How should we treat the dead? And who gets to decide? There should be some middle ground where we treat deceased tissues differently than we treat old refrigerators. This is Postmortem, the stolen bodies of Harvard, a new season of WBUR's Last Scene. Listen and follow Last Scene wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Folkenflik. In other news this week, the United Auto Workers have reached a tentative deal with General Motors after a month-long strike, but workers will stay on the picket line until all members vote. NASA begins its first all-female spacewalk, and U.S. Representative Elijah Cummings died at the age of 68. Here's a moment from February of this past year when President Trump's personal lawyer, Michael Cohen, testified before the House Oversight Committee, which Cummings chaired. Cummings' words were weighted with an eye outward to history and inward to the human condition. Hopefully, this portion of your destiny will lead to a better, a better, a better Michael Cohen, a better Donald Trump, a better United States of America, and a better world. And I mean that from the depths of my heart. When we're dancing with the angels, the question will be asked. In 2019, what did we do to make sure we kept our democracy intact? 
I have a great panel of guests with me this hour. Anita Kumar, White House correspondent, associate editor for Politico, Laura Rosen, diplomatic correspondent for Al Monitor, and our own on-point news analyst, Jack Beatty. Uh, you know, I covered Anita Kumar, uh, Elijah Cummings, when I was uh, – uh, when he was a, a, a new, a very junior congressman and I was an even newer and younger uh, congressional reporter, uh, covered it for him for the Baltimore Sun. He seemed to me smart, uh, shrewd, tough at the time. He was underestimated. I don't think anyone would describe him that way today. Uh, a guy who was the uh, son of sharecroppers, I think, from South Carolina. Uh, he had something of a, of a preacher's ability to, to, to give a sermon and carry an audience. He had the ability to walk the streets of Baltimore with credibility, uh, calming things down as he did after the, the riots of Freddie Gray, uh, after uh, Gray died in the back of a police van there uh, just a few years ago, and, and a thing that caused you know riots in Baltimore. Uh, an extraordinarily important leader for Baltimore who uh, transformed into a, an incredibly powerful voice, both for civil rights, but also uh, uh, for, for Democrats in the nation. How is he being remembered this week in Washington? You know, he was sick and he had been out um, and, you know, from Capitol Hill for the last few weeks. But I think a lot of people were really surprised um, that he he died. You saw the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, talking about him and her voice breaking, uh, you know, and other members, uh, House Democrats, colleagues, talking about how he was sort of their North Star. That was a word, a phrase used often yesterday that sort of he was the, you know, the moral uh, – he offered this moral clarity to them, as, as particularly in this last year as they were embarking on this impeachment inquiry of the president. Obviously, he became very powerful. He's the chair. He was the chair of the House Oversight Committee. So you saw him sparring with the president just weeks ago. Uh, we saw the president, though, uh, coming out with a with a nice statement yesterday. So there was just a lot of talk about this. But I was really struck by how many people were talking uh, and affected by this death in the morning and by the afternoon. Afternoon, just, you know, with all the news and everything that's going on, that things had just just moved past that a little bit. And it was a it was pretty sad. You saw these great tributes from uh, John Lewis, the great civil rights icon and congressman, uh, Sherilyn Eiffel, who's the head of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, but also from people across the aisle. I was struck by Trey Gowdy, uh, mm -hmm. somebody who, you know, uh, a leading Republican, a former uh, U.S. attorney. Uh, he had been head of a number of uh, investigative committees of Democrats then you know, crossed swords rhetorically w with uh, Cummings. And he, he did an incredible uh, thread on Twitter about him. And it led with this statement. He said, uh, congressman from South Carolina... A Republican said, Elijah Cummings was one of the most powerful, beautiful, and compelling voices in American politics. The power and the beauty came from his authenticity, his conviction, the sincerity with which he held his beliefs. We rarely agreed on political matters. And then he went on to indicate why he admired him so much. Uh, we acknowledge the death of Elijah Cummings at 68. We're tuned now to talking about the Democratic debates and a pending Brexit deal. You can join our conversation. Tell us what you think. Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. Uh, Let's go to the uh, the the debates. Uh, they were, uh, you know, held with CNN. Uh, they were held with the the New York Times. Uh, Jack Beatty, what struck you? Who 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 made a play for the public in this debate in a memorable way? Uh, well, uh, what struck me, and I, I guess it is memorable, but perhaps not a not in a good way, was that Joe Biden really had no answer to a question he should have been prepared for for at least a couple of years, namely. Um, your son, uh, Hunter, was receiving uh, this sinecure, $50,000 a month from a Ukrainian mining company or energy company, uh, and, and, and you were the vice president. And, uh, and, and now you've come out with an ethics plan that says no nepotism in my administration. Elect me president, and it, it's going to be pure as the driven star. No, no relatives in anything. And the question was, was asked, well, wait a minute. If that's, stand, if that's to be the standard of your presidency, why wasn't it the standard of your vice presidency? <laughs> mm -hmm. And he had no answer. And, and now it's come out in reporting in the Washington Post this morning that in 2015, a State Department official raised the issue of apparent conflict of interest of Hunter and, and, and with, with the vice president, his father, holding the Ukrainian portfolio, raised the question with someone in Biden's, on Biden's staff and got this reply that the vice president, quote, didn't have the bandwidth, end quote, to deal with Hunter 
because his son Bo was dying. Well, that's certainly completely understandable. Uh, uh, but and, and was even there as an excuse, if you will, and probably not just an excuse, but the truth for the vice president the, uh, the other, during the debate. Instead, he didn't, he didn't step up to it. And this in a week when Hunter himself admitted, quote, poor judgment in, uh, in, in accepting this job at uh, this, this uh, money from, from, from the Ukrainian company. And it was also poor judgment on the vice president's part. And he had no answer for it. I'd like to take a couple quick calls about the Democratic uh, de- uh, candidates and debate. First, we'd like to take a call from Amherst, Massachusetts. Steve, thanks for listening. Thanks for calling in. What are your thoughts? Hi. Uh, love your show. Thank um, you. I am a fan of Amy Klobuchar, and I thought she had a ter- terrific debate. Uh, it's hard with 12 people on the stage. Um, as a liberal, I love Bernie. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is my senator. I love her. But I think A.B. Klobuchar has everything it takes to win. She's more moderate. She doesn't have extreme views uh, that many of the centrists in the country uh, would be unable to support. So uh, I wish more people would pay attention to uh, her uh, candidacy. I appreciate that. It's fascinating to me the degree to which uh, uh, callers uh, and voters think about electability rather than about who they might be more simpatico with. But uh, Amy Klobuchar is basing a lot of her appeal on that very thing. I want to take a call now from West Orange, New Jersey. Brent, thanks for calling in. What are your thoughts? Uh, hi. Uh, I want to say that, firstly, I'm an African-American male who is strongly supporting Elizabeth Warren. I mm-hmm. like what she has done as a senator and before that what she did in creating the Consumer Financial Protection Board. Uh, I also want to point out that, um, to take the opposite view of the last caller, I think Amy Klobuchar needs to get out of the race. I don't know what she brings to the race. Hmm. And her attacking Warren, I think, has done her a lot of harm. Here's a person who abused Senate staff, having them in her home. This has been reported by you guys. Having Senate staff in her home while she gets dressed and ready, throwing a binder and hitting one in the face, that's a felony. Uh, I think she really hurt herself. I don't know of any of her programs or anything she's offering, and I fail to see what she brings except to try and tear down a frontrunner. Maybe she's running to be Joe Biden's beat, but Amy Klobuchar really needs to get out of the race because she's not bringing anything to the table. All right. Thank you, Brenda. Vote for Elizabeth Warren and a big vote against Amy <laughs> Klobuchar, although let's acknowledge she's addressed that and said, you know, uh, at times she, she presses her staff hard. It's been something that was raised early in the campaign. You haven't heard it as much lately. Anita Kumar, you know, I want to play a couple of clips from that debate because it was clear that Elizabeth Warren, in a sense, was stepping out in front of Joe Biden, treated by her rivals as kind of the lead candidate, right? And here are a couple of clips which give you a feel of some of uh, the back and forth. Let's uh, first start with uh, this exchange from the, the Tuesday night. Uh, it was held at uh, Audubon uh, College or University in Ohio. Uh, Biden and, 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 and Warren were get, got into this heated exchange over the creation of what the caller just mentioned, the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, and it led to this exchange. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So let's get those things straight, too. Senator Warren, do you want to respond? I am deeply grateful to President Obama, who fought so hard to make sure that agency was passed into law. And I am deeply grateful to every single person who fought for it and who helped pass it into law. But understand... You did a hell of a job in your job. Thank you. Anita Kumar, uh, of course, at that point, Warren was a Harvard law professor, I think, on lead helping to advise things. What was going on in that exchange? You know, I was just really struck by the whole debate, which is it was clear this is the fourth debate. Uh, Joe Biden was the lead, the front runner for the first three. Everything was about Joe Biden. All the attacks were on Joe Biden. He got the most time. Um, this was completely different, and Joe Biden knew it. He was trying to be in there and in the mix because Elizabeth Warren had all the attention. Uh, she spoke a lot. She got picked on a lot. She got attacked. Um, and that and that was him trying to say, look, I was relevant. I did help uh, with this bureau form this uh, when I was with President Obama as the vice president. Uh, she She rightly turned back, or I don't know if it was rightly, but she turned back quickly and said, 
uh, I appreciate what President Obama did, you know, namely leaving him out of that. Right. So, you know, you overall saw that uh, Senator Warren was was taking that spot, the front runner spot. And and for the most part, she was she was pretty ready. She knew that that was going to happen and and clearly had prepared for that. Um, and, and then there was this exchange. Uh, a number of folks uh, suggested at that debate that Senator Warren had been, let's say, evasive about how she'll pay for Medicare for all. Mark Lacey's national editor of the New York Times. He asked Senator Warren if she'll raise taxes on the middle class to help pay for that. You'll hear her answer and then how South Bend Mayor Pete Buttigieg responded. I have made clear what my principles are here, and that is costs will go up for the wealthy and for big corporations and for hardworking middle class families. Costs will go down. A yes or no question that didn't get a yes or no answer. Jack Beatty, uh, Warren got, uh, you know, tagged for that. Uh, How fair was that, uh, given the nature of her answer? I think it was fair. I mean, uh, Bernie Sanders is 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 honest about it. He said, "Look, yes, middle class people are going to have to pay more in taxes. They will in the you know in the in the net they'll come out ahead because they won't be paying so much for health care. But we have to stipulate they're going to your your taxes are going to go up. Well, uh, from what I'm reading, uh, Warren's campaign people tell her you can't use the T word or you'll be the Walter." Mondale revisited, who, you know, famously said, I'm going to raise your taxes and lost 49 states. So uh, but 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 but, you know, she talks about her principles. Well, surely one of her principles should be to be candid, to tell the truth, to be adult, to be grown up, to say, look, you know, here's here's what it's going to do, but it's going to save you money. But just use the word. But apparently they just have this fear, the neuralgic. You use the word tax and you're all done. Well, it'll catch up to her eventually, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. I want to turn now, Laura Rosen, to what's happening across the pond, uh, and that's uh, with Brexit uh, right now. Uh, surprise of surprises, uh, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson, much under attack, uh, in a, holding a real minority of votes in the British Parliament, uh, has announced that he's struck a deal uh, with the EU. Help us understand what the big shift is that the EU has agreed to here and that more, perhaps more to the point he's agreed to and what it says about a vote that's going to happen this weekend uh, in parliament in which he would have to get ratification of that. I have to confess that I, I am a little unclear how the agreement he struck yesterday in Brussels um, on the on the on the border between uh, Ireland and, and the rest of the UK um, is different from the one that his predecessor Theresa May had brought to Parliament before. I will say, just listening to uh, the announcements out of Brussels yesterday that they'd struck a deal, it did seem like there was more momentum for this one than we'd heard in the past, you know, six seven months um, that that led to Theresa May ultimately leaving the job and he's you know his party seems to think that they have enough votes to to pass it i guess there's a vote tomorrow it's kind um, of squishy and that it's this deal where it basically says that northern ireland which is a part of the united kingdom not part of the republic of ireland but it will be treated as though it's kind of part of ireland that taxes would be collected from the british side because it could flow through to the irish you know eu uh, residents and consumers and that they, the northern irelanders could vote later the northern irish i suppose would be better could vote later to decide to stay with it it seems as though it's very squishy and and his allies in uh, this very uh, a pro-British uh, Northern Irish uh, p- party have said, no, we're not going to vote for that at all. You know, they've announced uh-huh. that they're going to turn it down. Uh, does Boris Johnson seem to have a handle on this or is all with an eye to say, you know, we're going to go to elections and see what we can get uh, in front of the British people later on? I mean, he's lost all of his parliament votes in the short time he's been there so far. But the, there does, just in terms of atmospherics, the sense of confidence they've been projecting has been higher, that they can do it without this political party you're talking to the, the, about the DUP. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. And Nita Kumar, briefly, just in 30, 35 seconds, uh, the parents of a 19-year-old British teenager were brought into the White House by invitation of the National Security Advisor to meet with the president. Uh, this British teenager was killed by a car driven by an American uh, citizen named Anne Sakoulis. Uh, she was driving on the wrong side of the road. It's a different side of the road there. She's also wife of a U.S. government official was spirited out of the com- company. What are we to make of that meeting there that, he, that the president proposed between the, the grieving parents and the woman who killed their son? 
Yeah, the parents are saying that they were taken completely by surprise. So they went to the to the White House to meet with the president. Uh, it was something that they wanted to do, but the president sprung on them that the woman that was driving the car was in a room next door, and they were just completely taken aback by that and very upset by it. Uh, it's not what they wanted to do. They do want to meet her, but not under those circumstances in a in a surprise. Oval Office diplomacy uh, turned back thanks to Anita Kumar, uh, Laura Rosen, and our own on point news analyst Jack B. Thanks to all three. I want to take a special moment to thank the pride of Cleveland, our own Allison Poli, uh, for three years a mainstay of On Point. Uh, she was uh, voted in, in high school, as I understand it, most likely to bombard newsroom colleagues with news of the Cavs. She has been a producer, a director, even a reporter for our show on Broadway. She will be called a triple threat. There's apparently reason for that to be relevant later on. She's going on to New Vistas, a new journalistic challenge. She's been the heart and soul of the show uh, for, for my entire term here. We're so thankful. For it. I just wanted to say thank you, Allison. I'm David Fulkenflick, and this is On Point. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. ESG, or environmental social governance, challenges businesses to think beyond the immediate bottom line. But before ESG, the balance scorecard did something similar. Questrom's Eddie Riedel explains. The big thing that was groundbreaking about the balance scorecard is really this idea to move beyond thinking about financial statements, which everybody thought about since the 1920s, right? That was kind of the gold standard for how to evaluate a company and its performance, And the balanced scorecard's big insight, I think, was to get companies internally to think about, well, what if you don't just focus on financial measures? There are other things that are going to affect your performance, and maybe they won't affect them today, but they're going to affect them in the short term, midterm, long term. Building in those other criteria, those other dimensions, and explicitly linking that to your strategy, to how your company is going to operate, what kind of big decisions it's going to make, that's really what the big insight of the balanced scorecard was meant to do. And at the time, uh, right now, it doesn't seem particularly revolutionary. It seems kind of obvious. We've been stuck in the ESG movement for a while, and thinking about linking these things to corporate strategy seems pretty obvious. At the time, it was a pretty big, whoa, kind of moment. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts, and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets, and Society at ibms.bu.edu.